Uh, we're going to resume our study in the book of Luke. Uh, I know it's been two weeks as I've done two topical messages, uh, but we are going to resume this morning in Luke chapter 8. So if you have a Bible, open up to Luke 8. If you don't, um, the, one of the folks walking down the aisle will give you one. I, the, somebody will. Who's got Bibles? Israel, you got Bibles? All right, they're coming. Just raise your hand, they'll give you a Bible. Before I have you stand for the reading of the word of the Lord, um, I wanted to kind of set uh, the, the scenario for what's taking place here. We just studied the parable of what the scriptures call the parable of the sower, and I corrected that. It's not the parable of the sower. It's actually the parable of the soils. Um, the, the, the seed is the word of God, and the sower is the person who throws it out, and I'm throwing it out every Sunday. But it talks about four categories of soil. It's the hard ground, it's the, the shallow ground, it's the weed choked ground, and then it's the fertile ground. And only one of the four produces a, a return 60 to 100 fold. And, and as I had shared with you, what, three weeks ago, I, I said, the burden's not on me. I throw the, the seed out. It's dependent on the condition of your heart, whether or not you're going to be fruitful. So I just dismissed myself of responsibility, blamed you, and now we can move on. And I was really encouraged. But it is the condition of our heart to receive what it is God's sharing with us. And, and as we went through that, the Lord is talking about the power of his word that ultimately it produces fruit to bless others. And that's a, that's a fruitful life, one that's focused on others. And immediately following this teaching of the parable of what I call the soils, the Lord then goes into verse 16 and he talks about this idea of a lamp. He talks about this idea of light and he, he coincides it with his teaching on the, on the Sermon on the Mount with the Beatitudes when he says you're a, a city on a hill. And he, he points this out, that you don't want to cover this light you want it to shine. And, and the, the Bible says, let your light so shine before men that it glorifies your Father in heaven. And, and the idea is, especially in the Sermon on the Mount, it says you're the salt of the earth and salt penetrates, light illuminates. Uh, but it's more than that. It's, it's dealing with how we affect culture, how we affect society. And, and the word of God is so paramount to, to transforming culture and society. And I'm blessed by this passage. I pray it'll minister to you. It did to me. Uh, and, and in addition, I'm going to give you a little American history lesson. Has anyone ever heard the term American exceptionalism? Yeah, it's not many, especially, for, I'm, I'm probably the last generation that was educated in American exceptionalism. It came from a sermon by John Winthrop, 1630. He was a Puritan. He'd given this sermon as the Winthrop fleet was coming to establish um, a colony in Massachusetts, and we were all educated in our civic responsibility. It was Reagan who quoted the, the city on a hill. Also, John F. Kennedy quoted the same uh, sermon that John Winthrop gave. Many presidents had quoted it. It has uh, a, a meaning in the warp and the woof of the fabric of our nation. But the generations, the, the newer models that came after me, some of the younger folks, uh, they haven't been taught any of this, and they don't know much about it. But it's what makes America, this sermon, interestingly enough, John Winthrop's sermon, is what makes America exceptional. And it ties in with not only Luke 8, but also Matthew 5. And we're going to see that this morning, and I pray that it encourages you, because it is a timely message, and it's one that I think is desperately needed in our culture today. So with that being said, uh, would you stand with me for the reading of the word of the Lord? And I'll read out loud if you'll follow along silently. I'm going to pick up at verse 16. Jesus speaking, he says, no one, when he has lit a lamp, covers it with a vessel or puts it under a bed, 
But he sets it on a lampstand that those who enter may see the light. For nothing is secret that will not be revealed, nor anything hidden that will not be known and come to light. Therefore, take heed how you hear. For whoever has, to him more will be given. And whoever does not have, even what he seems to have will be taken from him. And then Jesus adds this uh, portion, and, and, and Luke lists it. It says, Then Jesus' mother and brothers came to him and could not approach him because of the crowd. And it was told Jesus by some who said, Your mother and your brothers are standing outside desiring to see you. And his response is interesting. Jesus answered and said to them, My mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. Had I said that to my mother, I'd be picking up my teeth with my broken arm. But what the Lord is saying is it's, it's important to not just be a hearer of the word, but a doer. You obey what God commands. And so he emphasizes that, and then he goes through the power of the word. As we'll see later, he calms the raging storm. He casts out demons simply by his spoken word. Why? Because his word is true. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And uh, he also says he's the light of the world. We're going to see all that come to play in the passage of Scripture as we study it together. But let's ask the Lord's blessing. Lord, thank you for your word, and it is true. And Jesus, you are the light of the world. And as we come to see this idea that you have called us to not place this light under a barrel, but that the world may see this light. And Lord, that nothing is secret, that all things are laid bare before your eyes. And you command us to take heed how we hear, because faith comes by hearing, and hearing from the word of God, the word which is true. And so, Lord, with this understanding, would you guide us? And Holy Spirit, you promise in your word to lead us into all truth. And so we commit ourselves to you as we prepare the soil of our heart to receive the riches of the truth of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, please have a seat. I put the passage of scripture up here, no one when he has lit a lamp covers it with a vessel or puts it under a bed, but sets it on a lampstand that those who enter may see the light. Uh, if you have a, a light on your, on your bedside, a bedside lamp, uh, you don't put a blackout shade over it as you turn it on. You need the light in order to see. And it's been often said, and it's true, especially if you're somebody that studies science, that you can't measure darkness. You can't measure cold. And the reason why is because cold is simply the absence of heat. You can measure heat, but you can't measure cold. Cold is the absence of heat. And darkness, same, is the absence of light. It only exists because of the absence of that which is. It's true also that not only is light a substance and heat is a substance, it's energy, both are energy, and that the opposite is the absence of that energy, it can be said as well that a lie is just the absence of truth. What do I mean by that? Culture is dictated by truth. There is truth. And it can be measured and it is absolute. And you can test it. And if you think you get away with something, the Bible says all things are laid bare before the eyes of God. He matches the, the action with the condition of the heart. God knows that. You may go before a judge and you may be able to snow a judge in a worldly court. 
But nothing escapes God's notice. Nothing. And when Jesus lays this out, he says, the idea is to let your light so shine before men that it will glorify your Father in heaven, as it will say later in Matthew 5. But he says, nothing, verse 17, nothing is secret that will not be revealed, nor anything hidden that will not be known and come to light. Light reveals truth. Light is this idea that you can examine the human heart. The Bible says in, in, in Hebrews 4 that the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword, able to divide the thoughts and the intents of the heart. Uh, the idea is I can be deceived and you can be deceived and we can deceive each other, but with God, nothing is deceived. He sees it. The light of his truth reveals the condition of our heart and the motivations for why we do what we do. And man is a fallen creature and we have taken deception to a whole new level. And I, I have been duped by some really gifted liars. I have. And I have, I've been played. And, and never more so than lying to myself. And putting myself in circumstances and situations that have nothing to do with what God desires. And convincing myself that somehow I'm right when all along I knew deep inside I was wrong. It's by his word as you read it that the word of God is the only book in the world where we don't read it, it reads us. That's why a morning devotion or an evening devotion is so vital because it aligns you with truth, expels the darkness, takes out the light so that the substance remains. Substance. Something you can put your life on and bank. It's a foundation that you can build upon. Not shifting sands of deception, but the reality of truth. And then the... The author, Luke, goes on to say, therefore take heed how you hear, because faith comes by hearing, hearing from the word of God. For whoever has, to him more will be given, and whoever does not have, even what he seems to have will be taken from him. What does that mean? Well, the idea is we enter into this world and we are communal. We have to dwell together. And the idea is we need sustenance on this earth. And so we connive and we scheme and the idea of giving and the idea of surrendering, the idea of being part of God's kingdom and this idea of a city on a hill or this idea of being a light to a, a dark world, we, we even use church as a benefit for ourselves. And God knows that when we give, are we expecting in return? And, and all this takes place and whatever our motivation is, God simply says, if you're giving for the wrong reason, you're not giving. You want to take and you're using schemes and gimmicks to take. And that's going to be taken from you. He knows the condition of the human heart. He knows these things. How does he know it? Jesus declares in John 9 when he says of himself, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. I'm the one who brings light where there's darkness. I reveal the crevices of the heart and all those areas of darkness. And he says in John 1.5, the light shines in the darkness. The darkness doesn't comprehend it. How do you know how did you know that about me? God says, all things are laid bare before my eyes. I know everything about you. You've been fearfully and wonderfully made. You've been knitted together in your mother's womb. I, I know you may be able to deceive everyone in the room, but I know you. I've always known you. One of the messianic prophecies that was quoted at the coming of Christ when he entered into Zebulun and Naphtali, this idea of what was declared in the Christmas story 
uh, was a quote out of Isaiah 9. And it says, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. You see, when truth is removed from a culture, death prevails. Death is the destruction of substance. And the idea that when, when light is no longer existent, then deception takes control and people die. Life is no longer ch- cherished. Children, elderly, we wipe them off the face of the earth. Those who are less than us and we enslave. And all of a sudden, this takes on a whole chaotic and, and demonic realm. And when Jesus entered into Naphtali and Zebulun, when he came into Capernaum, which was that region, this is where he began his earthly ministry in the darkest region of the world that was a trade route for Rome. And he came into this region and he began to preach this light, this truth, this substance that would transform mankind and the world as we know it today. And all this was declared there in Capernaum on the Mount of Beatitudes when Jesus gave what is called the Sermon on the Mount which is almost in direct correlation with Luke chapter 8 that we just read. And here is the passage of Scripture in Matthew chapter 5. He says, You are the light of the world, a city that is set on a hill that cannot be hidden. As it said in Luke 8, you can't cover it. It cannot be hidden. You're, you're a city that is set on a hill, and you cannot be hidden. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Same thing in Luke 8. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. This is a profound passage of Scripture. And the Lord emphasizes, and we see the the same picture in Luke 8. And he uses this term, a city that is set on a hill. A city that is set on a hill. He's deliberate by that statement. The word city in the Greek means polis, where we get the word politics. Oh, there he goes again. He says it's a polis that is set on a hill. It cannot be hidden. And the idea is let your light so shine before men, mankind, that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Before I get into this concept of city on the hill, I want to reemphasize what I talked about earlier, that cold does not exist. In reality, cold is only the absence of heat. Darkness is in reality only the absence of light. Evil is only the absence of God, and a lie is only the absence of truth. This is important to note because anything of substance that will remain, that will go on to eternity, has to, re- has to be regarded in relation to what exists, what is, what is significant. Truth is significant. Light is significant. Heat is significant. Right? God is significant. Now, all those other things exist by the absence of what is significant. The reason why I want to emphasize that is that brings us to the passage that said that we are a city on a hill. And and the idea is a city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. This is a term that Ronald Reagan used, as did John F. Kennedy and six other U.S. presidents, referring to one of the most remarkable sermons that had a great emphasis on the future of our nation and is knitted into the warp and the woof of the fabric of who we are that brought us this concept of American exceptionalism. Now, for those of you who have dismissed it, you didn't get this education, you want to walk out, at least stick around to grasp what this is in case you've never studied it before and then go back and do your own research. 
But don't dismiss it because it flies in the face of something that you've been inculcated with or indoctrinated with. Listen. Listen. Test it. See if it's true. But this idea of a city on a hill. You see, the Arbella was Governor Winthrop's flagship. And while he was on the Arbella, this ship, he gave a sermon. And the title of the sermon was a model of Christian charity. A model of Christian charity. I'll read to you the backdrop. It was given aboard the Arbella not long before reaching New England. Winthrop referred to their new place in the new world as a city on a hill that would be watched by the world in order to inspire these new Puritans. The work you're going to undertake will affect the rest of the world. The significance of this small group of people on this little ship would affect the rest of the world as we know it. He began his sermon by stating, God Almighty, in his most holy and wise providence, has so disposed of the condition of mankind as in all times some must be rich, some poor, some high and eminent in power and dignity, others in poverty and subjection. He explains that the rich are permitted wealth not for their own benefit, but for the glory of his creator and the common good of the creature man. God permits one man to be wealthy so that the wealthy man may share his riches with the poor man, benefiting both, not out of obligation, but out of adoration. A willingness, not an obligation. Winthrop summarized these two rules with an overriding law, that mankind is commanded to love his neighbor as himself. He acknowledged that a person is responsible to make provisions for one's family and also for the future. But the overriding principle, if thou lovest God, thou must help thy brother. The point is this. We're to provide for our family. The Bible says a man who doesn't provide for his family is less than an infidel. And we want to watch the economics of our home. Right? I was with my son and Michelle. Uh, we visited him. And... Um, I have, I've seen the faithfulness of God in my life. And as I'm with my, my son, whose whole life is ahead of him, and he's, he's examining different uh, opportunities within the Navy, and he's looking at his future, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm looking back a little bit, and he's looking forward. And it, it came to a head when we were in a restaurant, and I was watching the Dodger game, and at the time it was 3-2, to two, they were playing in San Francisco, it was last night, and watching the Dodger game, and then they seated us, and I could still see the television from the table, but I couldn't tell the score, because it was so far away, and everything was a blur. And I said, what's the score, Daniel? And he turns with these 20-10 eyes, eagle. <laughs> he goes, oh, it's 7-2, to two, Dad. I, I couldn't make out a word on the screen, and the little down, seven to two. I go, no. He goes, no, it's seven to two, and somebody pulls up, and I'm like, yeah, it's seven to two. I'm like, and he goes, Dad, you're getting old. <laughs> well, you're paying for the bill. <laughs> he said, you're getting old. I said, no, I'm getting older, but I shared with him. I said, you know what's interesting, son, is where I'm sitting at 54, almost 55, I'm sitting with my back to the engine of the train. And so we're going that direction. And as I look out the window, everything's flying by. But as I take my gaze off of immediacy and look this way, I have the expanse of my past. And I can take it all in leisurely and enjoyable. And there's lots of wisdom to be gleaned from seeing these things. 
You, however, are facing the front of the train and everything's passing by. But I have the advantage of wisdom to look back and see the expanse of it. And I know that when you apply the truths of God's word to your life, you will have fruitfulness. And I said, this idea, I'm sitting across, and I was considering this, I'm sitting across, all my children walk with God. I'm sitting with my wife of 29 years. The two of us were reflecting as we were walking into the restaurant how faithful God has been to us. And, and you have those nights of sleeplessness where you're pouring out your heart to God. You're laying these things upon him. You have burdens, but you cast your cares on him for he cares for you. And you see his faithfulness over the generations. And there are times where he hasn't answered every question. There's times where there still is consternation and struggle. But even in that, you see that he's a good God. And the reason why I share this is because this was a sermon in a sense that I'm giving to a future generation. He's going to affect generations to come by the way he's going to apply these truths. We've wanted to raise them in the love and the admonition of the Lord, and it's been a labor of love for us. But as Winthrop is pouring himself into this small congregation of believers, and he's giving them what's called the, the Sermon on Christian Charity, he reflects on this idea. He says in the sermon, a model of Christian charity is to describe the ideas and plans to keep this new society strong in faith. He used the phrase from Matthew chapter 5, a city upon a hill, to characterize this society's endeavor to honor a pact with God, to create a holy community that would bear one another's burdens and be bound by love. You see, this is American exceptionalism. What does that mean? This idea of American exceptionalism. It's almost an odd term. It's one where we, we start to struggle a little bit. I like what one author says. He says, Winthrop said, we are entered into a covenant with him for this work of establishing a new colony. We have taken out a commission. He warned the congregation, the Lord will surely break out in wrath against us if we fail that commission by putting the interests of others and of the colony above our own interests. Seeking great things for ourselves and our posterity, the Lord will surely break out in wrath against us and be revenged of such a people and make us know the price of the breach of such a covenant. And finally, Winthrop called upon his listeners to commit themselves to brotherly love and unity, setting the needs of others of the community above one's own needs. We struggle with that. Generosity is not a natural thing unless we're getting something in return. Why would you give to anybody that which is yours? They got themselves in that mess. Why would you help them? And, and the fascinating thing is, why let the church do it or why do it in, in, a, in a realm of charitable giving? Let's just create a government that'll do it for us. Because government is so efficient. The idea... John Winthrop, when he declared this city upon a hill. This is, this is interesting because he used the word city. And I said earlier, it's a term that comes politics. It's derived from the Greek word polis, city, which means the city-state. Greeks made no distinction between the state and the government and the state and the society. They never differentiated between personal life and social life. Hence, the Greeks' politics was a total study of man, society, state, and morality. 
There's no separation between the way in which you govern your lives and that which God dictates. We're all to have this mindset when we step into a realm where we live together. And that applies to any system. This city is a place you enjoy living and you have a voice in that city as we dwell together, we shop together, we, our, our kids go to school together, we're endeavoring for unity. We look at the concerns, we see some of the poverty, we see some of the concerns, we see what happens to us, and as a community we come together. But where does that generosity come from? When I shared with you about the VCCF, the Ventura County, uh, Commission, uh, Ventura County Com uh, Community Foundation, $8 million came in, over 70% of it from the Conejo Valley. The generosity of people. You see, this is a polis. This is a city committed to, the, to all of its citizens. And Winthrop was addressing this. Politics is not the mere institution of governance, but a mechanism for achieving societal goals. It also includes matters concerning the allocation and transfer of power, public policy, and economics of society. And then it brings us to this word economics. It's from the Greek word oikonomia. It means household management. And that brings us back to the passage. How does your family live? And what dictates your economy? How do you manage your home? You see, God doesn't require a tithe because he needs your money. That's not the point of the tithe. Tithe means tenth. It's to establish who is primary in your home. God says, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness therein. It's all mine. And I make you a steward of it. And so that you never lose sight of who's in charge of this economy, you start with me first. And I'll let you do what you please with the other 90. I don't preach this because there's a need. This is what the text says. Every time there's been a need in the church, God has met it. And oftentimes by people who don't attend. And that's not to dismiss the generosity of the fellowship. That's not the point. The point is economio. How do you manage your home? If God isn't preeminent and he's not first, why would that be the case in society? Why would your children transfer that? What you spend your time, treasures, and talents on is what dictates who oversees the polis, the city, the governance, and the household management. And that's really what a society is. It's a bunch of families dwelling together. And as a community with this, this city-on-a-hill sermon that John Winthrop gave that established American exceptionalism, what he declared to those who were present was that we're going to dwell together and we will be our brother's keeper. We will be generous. God didn't give us wealth so that we could buy more things. He gave us wealth so we could be more significant in the establishing of his kingdom come, his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We've come to a place in our life where we give God a tip. And we wonder why society is falling apart around us. When in reality, he's not even king of our home. 
And as we examine this, that was one of the hardest things for us as a family because we would be working at a church being paid pittance and to do a tithe from that was unbelievable. And I always used to say, if I win the lottery, I'll I'll catch up, God. If you don't give when you have little, you won't give when you have much. It's a condition of the heart. Who do you trust? You can't serve both God and mammon. It's an opportunity to release your kung fu grip on the possessions because the reality is everything is laid bare before the eyes of God and it has nothing to do with possession but a condition of the heart and the position of the heart. There's no U-Haul van that follows the hearse to the cemetery and I always get a kick of people saying, I'm going to leave this to you when I die. You don't leave anything when you die. It's no longer yours. It's not like you're from the grave going, and I want that to go to that person. That doesn't work that way. The idea is, God, it's all yours, and I'm here to serve you. What would you desire to do with that which is yours? How can I bring you the greatest glory and put you preeminent in my family, in the oikonomos, the, the household management, to establish a polis that would be a city on a hill where our light would so shine before men that it would glorify our Heavenly Father. Let your light so shine before men. What do we do in relation to that? And you say, well, how is this American exceptionalism? How is this sermon in 1630 of a city on a hill, a polis, this economics, imploring the people to make a covenant with God that he would be first and preeminent and we would care for those around us and have a heart of generosity? It's real simple. Look. The most genuinely compassionate nation. Share of the gross domestic production And the generosity, voluntary social expenditure, that's America. Whenever there's a hurricane, a tsunami, an earthquake, when anyone's in trouble, we come and we help. And we give. We give. We give generously. I'm blessed by this because in this passage in Luke chapter 8, the Lord's commenting that this is a declaration of light. Why do we give? Because anything we have was first given to us. And we declare, for God so loved the world that he gave. He gave. Our God gives and so do his children. That's America. More importantly, more importantly, That's the kingdom of God. Now, America's giving is declining because our love for the Lord is we've fallen more in love with the gifts than we have with the giver of the gifts. We're becoming more and more stingy, and he's becoming less and less significant in our lives. You measure that which you worship by what you give your time, treasures, and talents to. I think percentage-wise in this church, it's a tithe. The gifts of the body. Some give more, some give less, and I think it balances out. If you take husband and wife, family unit, divide it, it's, and then the average income in the city, we're pretty close. I mean, this is a very generous congregation. I'd, I'd compare this to any church in America. That's not my point. My point for all this is 
whether you attend here or leave because you didn't like the message, that's okay. My point is, who runs the economy of your house, your oikonomos? Is God preeminent? Because if he's not preeminent there, you won't be having a wonderful conversation with your children in years to come about his faithfulness. And you won't be looking back at the expanse as your back is towards the future and you're looking back in your old age rejoicing in his faithfulness because you were so enamored looking forward at everything passing by and you had to buy it all. And you had to have it all. But what's amazing is you get to this place in life and you realize how faithful God is. And the beauty of it is no matter what I've given in my life, I've never been able to outgive him. The last thought was we were in Coronado. We're sitting, sitting with my sister and my brother-in-law. And I was asking my sister, is there anyone from mom and dad's generation that's still living it was a town I grew up in. Mom and dad said, or my, my sister said, mom and dad's dear friends, Captain and Mrs. Stark. You've heard the story of Captain Stark. He was a survivor of the Hanoi Hilton. He was a Vietnamese prisoner of war. He's still living. And so is Mrs. Stark. And Captain Stark has Alzheimer's. And my sister Nancy said they're living in mom and dad's old house. This is the one where I met Michelle. It's a really cool house, Coronado. And they sold it to move to Sacramento. First question is, what were you thinking? <laughs> and, and, and the idea of, I said, could you imagine if mom and dad had hung on to that talking to my sister? Because when my parents died, they died with zero. They didn't know anything and they didn't leave anything. It was really sweet. It's like they stole home. Safe. <laughs> <laughs> they were generous their entire life, but they didn't leave anything. They'd already given it when they were on this earth. I said, but wouldn't it be nice if they'd left us the house? I was blessed by my sister and my brother-in-law. They said, you know when dad and mom sold the house and they moved to Sacramento? I said, yeah. That's when they came to know Christ. There's a mansion in heaven that they're enjoying now. And a house in Coronado is a pittance compared to what my parents enjoy. I'm grateful for that. And it put it into very clear perspective of what counts in life. I came home, and I think the reason why I was awake most of the night praying It was I was humbled and I just spent time thanking him and giving him areas of my life that I hadn't surrendered. I was praying for folks and just enjoying his presence. And it's amazing to fall asleep and awake in doing that. It's one of the most restful sleeps I think I've ever had. I love that idea of a city on a hill. My parents live there now. It makes Coronado look like Compton. <laughs>
truly? What are you holding on to? Let him have it. Give him your life and you'll never be able to outgive him.